So recruiting, obviously in the league, you were known as a great recruiter. So what is your recruiting approach? So if you're sitting down with me, I'm somebody you really want, you really want me on the team. What's your approach to recruit me? You want first place, come play with me. You want second place, go somewhere else. Welcome to the One Broken Cog Podcast. Join John and Brian as they share small adjustments that lead to major impacts. One Broken Cog Podcast back again. Excited to be here. You know, being a great place to work is the difference between being a good company and a great company. That's actually a quote from Brian Christofek. He's president and CEO of Upshot. But, you know, a lot of times employees and employers, they don't agree. But one thing they do agree on is that a great company culture is a key component of a successful business. And the stats prove it. I mean, 88% of employees believe a strong company culture is a key to business success. And 94% of executives feel the exact same. And to even solidify that even further, another study came out of over 1,400 North American CEOs and CFOs, more than 90% said culture was important at all of their companies, and over 50% said corporate culture influences productivity, creativity, profitability, firm value, and growth rates, but only 15% said their company's corporate culture was where it needed to be. So the overall consensus is that culture plays a key role in the difference between being a business success or failure. So why is it so difficult to achieve? Why have businesses failed at creating or sustaining a culture that attracts and retains top talent? Well, my guest today helps leaders rebuild trust in their organization after a culture meltdown and is here to discuss 10 early warning signs of culture crash to help professionals prevent problems before they spiral out of control. And he's none other than Keith Wilson. Now, some background on Keith. He grew up in a small town in Ohio and was surprised to find himself starting his career in full-time ministry. Now, as a pastor with a side hustle, he helped launch three nonprofit startups, start two businesses, and consulted in 40 other organizations. Although each organization was different, he kept seeing the same people problems over and over again. Eventually, he decided to dedicate his career to helping leaders build environments of mutual trust and respect so they can avoid the problems that plague them the most. Now, in the last 10 years as a certified coach, consultant, facilitator, he spent over 3,000 hours coaching leaders, over 1,600 hours training teams, and spoken over 300 times to live audiences up to 2,500 people. Now, as an organizational development consultant for Scroggins Greer, he spent the last five years helping small businesses, medical practices, and nonprofits recover from internal culture problems that have caused an organizational crash. Now, today he's made it his mission to equip each one of you with an early warning system so you can stop a culture crash before it starts. Keith, it's great to have you in the show. Welcome to the One Broken Cock Podcast. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Excited to share with you as well. Yeah, no, I'm excited to hear it. I can't wait. Now, I know before we begin, you've got a funny story to tell involving you being, what, fired as a pastor and it kind of led you on this path. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, that's, man, jump right into that. That's great. Yeah, so I started ministry full-time and uh, was there for years and years and years. And actually, part of my story is that the okay team I was a part of became the best team I was a part of for about five years. And then that eroded pretty quickly and it became the worst team. So I've seen it go from good to bad, you know, and, and in, in between pretty quickly. And that's actually a big part of that kind of story. So I was a pastor for nine years, this one place and was uh, really engaged doing things really well. And one of those, you, know, you get those times, Brian, where it's like, uh, things that you're kind of firing on all cylinders, everything's going really well the way you want it to go. And uh, that's the one of the seasons I was in and developing new things and leadership development programs and felt like things were going really well and got kind of asked into a room one day and uh, the board said, hey, we, we 
just wanted to let you know we heard you and we understand that uh, you're ready to leave. And I went, oh, that's not really what I was thinking. Where'd you get that? You know, <laughs> so I started to kind of share some thoughts of, well, we kind of noticed this or that or heard this or that. And like, oh, that's not, that's not what I'm thinking exactly. And um, they kind of laid a job description in front of me and said, well, you see these five things on here? And I said, yeah. And they said, well, you're, you're not doing number one, number two, number three, you're kind of doing number four, you know, and do you agree? And I'm like, yeah, I agree. And I said, well, then, you know, it looks like you're kind of don't want to be here if you're not doing these things. I said, well, that's, that's fine. Except there's one problem that that isn't my job description. And uh, they said, they were a little surprised by that, but you know, I had had a <laughs> boss who had changed my role and I'd hired other people on my team and they didn't know that the word didn't make it up the chain of command. <laughs> Talk about some broken cogs, right? Oh um, yeah. That my whole role had changed. And so they said, well, what is your role? And I told them, they said, Oh, well that makes sense. You know, I pulled it up on my phone. That's, that's what we've seen you doing. You know, <laughs> well, that's why. And so there are all these little misunderstandings and, Turns out, I mean, some discernment on their part. Yeah, it was time for me to transition into helping other people uh, prevent this kind of issue. And so I think it was correct and right um, for me to be moving on at that point. But so they kind of fired me and then unfired me at the, at the same meeting because they realized it was all because of a lot of misunderstanding. Uh, but then I ended up resigning anyway and on to doing what I think is uh, what I'm supposed to be doing right now. So all works out in the end, but it comes from things not going so well, right? <laughs> wow. So essentially, God told them it was time for you to go before he told you about it, huh? Yeah. Yeah. It would have been nice to know, you know, first. And, you know, we could have all done it a little differently and it would have made it work better. Because, you know, I lost friendships as we left, lost some relationships with a long time people that uh, would have liked to have kept and maintained. But that's part of the price when things don't go well in organizational culture. So... Um, and that's really what we're here to talk about, right? Yeah. No, it's true. And it's so interesting, the fact that it's, you, you hit on something very, very important. When people leave and other people don't understand the reasons for that, they tend to ostracize you, right? It's, it's just they forget about that relationship that you had. It's kind of like you're, we're in a relationship as long as you're here. But if you leave right. these walls, it's just it's over at that point. It's very interesting how that happens. Yeah. Somebody wise at the point tell me, they were telling us at the time, you know, you're going to kind of find out now as you leave, which of those kind of friends are for you and which of those are for the cause that you're for, you know, um, meaning some are going to stick around kind of here or maintain alliances where you were not necessarily to you as a person. And so it does kind of help you understand <laughs> who the people are in that are important to you. But. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. For sure. Now I, I can't wait to hear about this. You have 10 early warning signs of culture crash. And that's basically yes. to help professionals prevent problems before they spiral out of control. I love it. Let's just take it from the top down. Let's work our way down the list. What's the, what's the number one? Yeah, exactly. So these are things that we go in after things have gotten really bad. We're kind of that you know, triage after somebody's come in with a terrible um, problem and we're trying to help reverse engineer a, a fix, um, which the problem with that is that um, these things get so bad that they're difficult to repair. They're costly to repair. And by the time we get involved, if it's that late, uh, relationships are burnt, bridges are burnt. And so at some point we were trying to figure out what do we do about getting called after the crash or as it's happening. And uh, my daughter came home one day with a story about Tilly Smith and it was a project she's doing for school. I have four kids and um, she was all excited. She's, she's our you know, daughter that loves class projects and that kind of thing. And Tilly Smith's story is basically a girl in England in 2004. She's from Surrey, England and her family's vacationing in Thailand and uh, right before the hurricanes hit 
and she was a good student and she was there for two weeks at Christmas with her family and she noticed, um, or sorry, not hurricanes, the tsunami. She noticed the uh, signs early of a tsunami hitting and she's on the beach with her family one morning um, after Christmas and she panicked, she's 11 years old and got her family off the beach. Uh, her mother resisted her strongly and another 100 people or so got off the beach because of her, even though lifeguards and things are saying, oh, there's no problem, there's no problem. And these earthquakes that happened off the coast caused a tsunami that um, unfortunately a lot, a lot of people lost their lives, but over 100 people said, hey, because Tilly, 11-year-old girl who aced her geology in a you know quiz last week on this information was here, we kind of were saved. So. That idea prompted this, well, we see these things early. Let's talk about them. You know, let's share them and help people become their own Tilly Smith. You know, everybody's involved in the culture. We can see these before they get bad. So the first one, um, we call this the avoid dance. So the avoid dance is basically, uh, what's interesting is the cultures that crash that we end up working with, normally we think of the harsh or nasty um, cultures where people are being mean or uh, divisive. We found that we spend time working with more cultures that weren't harsh or nasty. As a matter of fact, they were the opposite. They were too nice. So the team has a tendency to avoid disagreement uh, for the benefit of just kind of being kind to each other, uh, but they don't hold each other accountable. And eventually that kind of erodes. But the avoid dance is really, we kind of create these little ways of avoiding dealing with stuff. Um, and so somebody might say, man, Brian, you got you to talk to John. It's the fifth time he's, you know, not done this, that, or whatever. And you, and you might say, uh, well, you know what? I've got his review in December. I've, I've put that on a list of things. I'm going to talk to him then. Or the board can't get along. And so somebody says, well, you know what? We're, we've got this merger happening in eight months. We'll just deal with it then. It'll sort itself out. And we, I even had a board once I sat with as an intern early in work that uh, they put all these little hard candies and wrappers in the middle of the table before we sat in a board meeting. And I've been in dozens of meetings, never a board meeting, dozens of meetings with this team. I went, what are the candies for? And they said, well, whenever something comes up that we feel like we need to speak up about, then um, we put, we put a candy in our mouth because it kind of inhibits us from talking well and it keeps us from bringing it up. Um, wow. <laughs> those issues became their downfall later on. But whenever we withhold that truth, and trust just erodes. And this is kind of an early one, um, but we find little ways of dancing around it. So I call that the avoid dance. Yeah, I like that. You know, a lot of it's procrastination. Hey, I just don't want yeah. to do it, so I'll put it off. But it's also either they don't know how to yeah. do it, they don't know how to be direct, or they're trying to be a pleaser, yeah. right? They yeah. don't want to hurt that person's feelings, even though the fact is they're helping that person get better. Yep. It's just unbelievable. So I love that. So what's yep. the next one? Yeah, yeah. That What eventually then kind of happens is almost a next sign. We call this the herd of elephants, right? Everybody's heard of the elephant in the room, uh, that subject or person that we can't bring up that we're too uncomfortable to mention. But when we get into organizations, when they're struggling, um, we'll find that there's a whole herd of them. <laughs> Meaning, we'll sit in a meeting and there'll be a dozen topics that have been needed to bring, be brought up that haven't been. So we might have avoided, we've kind of danced around them and not addressed them. And now nobody's even bringing them up. We're just keeping our mouths shut. And most of the time, people can name three, four, five topics in organizations that are struggling with this and creating a psychologically safe environment. Google's done a lot of study on that, um, that they just, they won't speak up at all. They'll roll their eyes. They'll have a meeting after the meeting at the water cooler or in the bathroom where they actually say what they're thinking. And that's one of the greatest ways to stifle creativity, certainly, is to create an environment where people don't feel safe to bring up difficult issues 
and aren't sharing that with people. So it just becomes a one-sided conversation when that happens. So we call that a herd of elephants, not just one, but many of them. Yeah. So essentially, you know, piling up all this stuff yeah, and then bringing that to the table, it's just so, somewhat overwhelming. So it's not a balanced meeting. There's no constructive yeah. criticism. It's just dumping all those frustrations all at once <laughs> exactly. before. It, yeah. Not a good thing. Way um, too much at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Not a good thing. Not a good thing. So we got number one, number two, what's number three? Yeah. Untouchables. So we've all or heard it, right? The gangsters of the twenties and thirties that were called the untouchables because they had somebody kind of in their back pocket. Well, a lot of organizations, this was kind of a different one that we discovered as we looked at this as a team, is that uh, business, nonprofit, whatever, have people who are protected in some way. And that might be like the board member's nephew who works there or the founder's best friend or that employee who made the critical deal or who, who has the key account um, or got some type of sale right at the point that kind of saved the business and saved our jobs. And in some way, they are treated differently. They're allowed to kind of run rough shot and do whatever like an untouchable would be. Um, and they're not, not held accountable to that. So it feels like they have a special relationship in the employee to the senior leader or to some type of access to our revenue. Then that's a, that can, that's a person who can become untouchable and it feels really unfair to other members of the team. Um, and actually we see this a bit more than I thought we might when we identified it, we started seeing it more and more. We had one at a uh, group we'd worked with in Cincinnati that, um, it was the board, it was the chairman of the board's son who worked there and he didn't, uh, didn't come to meetings, didn't show up to work till very late. Oftentimes would take a week off without telling anybody, even two weeks, just kind of disappear, didn't do anything. And, um, he was in charge of tech stuff and there'd be people who worked there that had, you know, their spouses coming in, a husband to come in in the evening to set up their computer because he didn't do it. But it was because everybody was afraid to address him because they knew he kind of carried the power and authority of his dad in some way. Um, but it feels unfair and it doesn't, resentment just builds with those kinds of people um, after time and more though with the leaders who allow that to, to occur. So that's the untouchables. <laughs> How hard is it for somebody like a business owner to take away that untouchable status from somebody like to undo what they've done? It is tough depending on the person. Um, but Usually, if they find some clarity about what they, if they see the problem, that's the first thing, right? They, sometimes it might be their special relationship with their daughter or son or somebody who works in the business already, and that's really hard for them to see at times. Um, but if they understand it, then we can help them sit down with that person and recraft expectations. That actually happens a bit faster than the people in the organization actually trusting that that's true. <laughs> Yeah. If that makes sense. Oh, it's yeah. easier for them to reset it than it is for everybody else to believe it has been reset. So it's a bit of a Yeah, road, that's a tough you, one. That's a tough yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, it is. A lot of relationships involved. So now we're on to number four. Yeah, work, we call these workarounds and advocates. So uh, we all know what workarounds are, but when we, we've all been in teams where you have difficult people, people who don't get along with other people who are maybe a little prickly. There's terms that we might use to refer to them. Um, but we'll find in organizations, especially after things have gotten bad, that there'll be several people who have been allowed to kind of behave that way. And in order for them to stay employed, we've created these kind of different ways of getting around them and minimizing their interactions with people. Uh, we've seen organizations even restructure an entire department around somebody instead of dealing with their specific behavior or approach to interacting. They'll restructure the department, 
we've had multiple times where we've seen somebody taken from a team and they'll move their office across the building and put them kind of on their own in a corner so that they're limited in their interaction, but they won't talk to them about why. And so we'll restructure things to work around that person and people will build entire processes and hire other people to get around interacting with that one person. Um, or we'll create advocates. Um, so sometimes we've had people who, uh, we had one lady whose daughter actually worked in the organization and she was safe. She would hear difficult news um, and have hard conversations with their daughter without exploding on her, but not anybody else. And so people would always go to her daughter who worked in an entirely different area uh, to come talk to her mom about things and, and get information that they needed in order to do their job. And that was a way they had kind of creatively worked around that. The problem is it just allows that we're all unintentionally, even as employees, reinforcing this behavior and creating an environment where it's okay to, to treat people with disrespect. And it kind of tells the rest of the organization that, hey, it's all right to be that way. We'll find a way just to kind of work around you, even if you're causing issues. And I was actually coaching this person and she was pretty devastated to figure out that's what was happening, that nobody had actually come to her. So that's certainly a harmful situation for everybody to get into. Wow. So no self-awareness there, huh? Yeah. Right. When, when, let me ask you this, uh, Keith, when you meet with these people, do they accept this feedback and do, are they receptive to it or, they're, or, or are they in denial and they're very turned off to this type of feedback? That's an excellent question. It depends on the person always. I think you probably <laughs> understand that, Brian. I mean, it's, it's up to their own level of willingness. I'd say it's probably for people who are um, this much trouble that the organization is kind of structuring around them and they've had a lot of bad interactions usually 30% of the time they'll accept it. You know, um, another part of the time they just categorically deny it. Sometimes they know it. They just don't have the desire to do anything different. And it's kind of inherent in them to respond that way. And they don't really have the desire to change. So there's three, there's kind of several things that get in the way there. Um, but it's, that's the first step, right? We know that healthy people are greedy for feedback, right? And they're looking for, other people to help them understand how they're perceived and what it's like to work with them. Um, we're not really good when we're ignorant of ourselves. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree hundred percent. It's mm -hmm. great. So now we are at the halfway mark. We're at yeah. number five. Yeah. So this one actually kind of ties into that. I'm, good question. Good segue without even knowing where we're going, Brian. Uh, I love it. This one we call this dissonant feedback. So I'm a musician a bit and you know what it sounds like everybody knows when you put a microphone in front of a speaker too closely that noise that you get the screeching howling thing that's ear piercing most leaders don't know how to give good feedback and people don't know how to give good feedback to each other critical negative or positive we don't deliver it well um, and that feedback we'll see in organizations that are struggling has been delivered poorly or it's been overly critical or too critical there's actually a balance um, that has to happen psychologically, where we need to receive, in order to receive critical, corrective feedback, that needs to be about 15% of the feedback we're getting. The other 85% needs to be positive reinforcement in some way in order to live in a healthy kind of trusting relationship. So a lot of organizations, people are just being too critical. They're giving it in a way that um, is harsh or nasty. And so people don't hear it. And all we have to do is give feedback poorly a few times before people just start, you know, ignoring it entirely. It's almost like the, uh, 
I'm going to date myself a bit. The Charlie Brown cartoon when the adults would speak. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know I'm talking yep. about you hear the, rah, yep. rah, 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 you know, didn't actually hear the words. You give feedback poorly a few times. Eventually, people are just, you know, with their fingers in their ears like it was that screeching feedback. They won't hear it. They won't listen. And so nobody changes. Nobody corrects anything. And it eventually affects communication and performance pretty drastically. No, it's true. They shut down and it's because they're not getting any type of positive reinforcement at all. And it's amazing how many leaders or managers miss this. I mean, to me, it's one-on-one stuff. You go into a meeting, you lead with the positive, you shift over Mm -hmm. to constructive criticism, and then you get a game plan on how we're going to meet the goal that we're trying to achieve. And it just, it resonates and people want to fight for you and win for you. And it's amazing how many people miss this. It's it's a great point. I love it, Keith. Yeah. Most of them want to do it. They just don't have the skill, right? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely correct. They don't, and they, they're unwilling to change most of the time. So now we are on to number six. Yeah, so number six, we call this shoots and ladders. I don't remember the game shoots and ladders. Um, I do. But I used to hate the game. We had yeah, it, my too. sister and I would play it. And I think I hated it. Well, I don't know why you hated it, but for me it was you rolled the dice and you had a path you were on, and if you landed where there was a ladder, you just got to go up. If you landed where there was a slide, the shoot, then you slid down. There was no skill involved. It was entirely the luck of the draw uh, of how you rolled. And organizations we go into that are struggling, people will say that the opportunity for them to grow or advance there feels like a game to them. Um, They might come in one day and the way to get promoted is to do this or that. Or I know what I need to do today is to take a step forward by doing this and this, but then tomorrow it's the opposite. And then somebody gets promoted in another department and I go, well, they're the they're the hardest person to deal with over there. And then I get demoted or whatever. And people are moving up and down, have no idea what it takes to succeed. You know, there's no clarity about what my path is, how I get there. And it feels like a game to them. And when we talk to them, they'll just be really frustrated employees in this kind of environment because they're not sure how to grow in advance. And eventually they just kind of lose interest and give half effort or go someplace else because the good people stick around where they have opportunity to grow. Um, but when it feels like, I have no idea. Um, we had one, one team I was working with that a manager had just gotten promoted over a department, was really excited about what he wanted to do. And he told a story about uh, how he got passed over for a promotion after he'd been there a couple of years for somebody who started at the same time as him, who was the worst performer on the team, who was the one that people couldn't stand and couldn't get along with, who put in minim- minimal effort. Um, and he was their top performer, got along great with, and I could attest to this. I know, you know, was seeing the situation years later and what had happened was the, the other guy had been employed a day before him and they gave the promotion based off of the length of employment, even though the other guy had been late <laughs> and no called, no showed. And it's just like, what on earth am I kicking my butt for? Right. If that's what we do. And so it felt like a game where you just didn't know. Yeah, it makes no sense. And a lot of times, if you think about it, if there's no clear, concise uh, path to a promotion or any type of uh, upward mobility, and there's no clear expectations being set, then what happens is a lot of times you see employees overworking themselves, thinking, well, I'm going to do this to gain favor of somebody to earn that promotion, and they end up overworking themselves. And, And, you know, the number one cause of stress at work is being overworked is taking on too much responsibility, whether that's perceived or whether it's reality or not. And it all ties into, like you said, not understanding what is required of me to become, is, are there promotion opportunities? If there are, right. 
what are you know what are the requirements so no that makes a ton of sense yeah yeah it feels chaotic for sure absolutely so now mm -hmm. we are down to lucky number seven yes so number seven uh, we call this negative normans so uh, what we've found when we go into organizations is there'll be kind of a norm of negativity um, that happens before the crash um, where whether it's complainers or kind of people who are whining or just downcast um, or people just drain the energy out of each other or it just feels like we're not going anywhere um, there's kind of this mentality of negativity or we've settled for just good enough that we'll see take that's taken root in an organization and what's funny is we'll come in from the outside and go man it's just sort of ugh, you know here <laughs> that's probably i know that's a technical term but it feels ugh. and so people are tired frustrated kind of run down but they don't even know it it's just become a part of who we are um, ingrained kind of in the culture um, and we know that neurologists have found that negative information sticks to our brains five times stronger than positive and so the closer we are to people who are negative or we have somebody who's a complaining or whining in a department the more we're likely to take on that behavior and uh, that negativity spreads like a virus in teams or families or anywhere so what we'll see is that it's become a norm and people are just used to it. They don't even know that it's happening. Interactions are not only negative, but sometimes they're not necessarily negative, just really uninspiring. And we've come resigned to problems that we have and just don't feel like we can do anything. We've kind of just relegated the responsibility we can take for things and are stuck. So it sticks around for a long time and that cynical kind of apathetic nature. Yeah, it does a lot to erode um, productivity and team and it doesn't take a long time for it to to become a part of who we are no it's true the new norm is not the right norm i know that right. great leaders lead from the front and by example mm. and of course if they're doing something like this and everybody takes it upon themselves to copy it or mirror it and the leader doesn't say anything as tacit approval they accept that as okay he's not saying anything or she's not saying anything this is acceptable and it becomes right. just a, a complete downward spiral yes. so not a good thing whatsoever. Yeah, now, Keith, now mm -hmm. we're at number eight. We're almost uh, at the end of our list. Number eight, I'm sure it's important. Yeah, yeah. So we call this inverse turnover. We all know what turnover is. It's something that we pay attention to. You know it's costly. Um, when people leave the organization, we have to replace them. The turnover can, in the healthy culture, can work to your benefit in the right way, meaning that we want to create an organization where the right people stick around the people who fit stay and the people who don't fit or aren't contributing in a healthy way would leave an inverse turnover is we'll come into organization and you can just measure turnover percentage um, but if that turnover percentage is the your best people leaving <laughs> and the un, underproductive people sticking around that's working against you so we call that inverse turnover um, we have a culture assessment we use at a group actually early in this year as a medical practice take it and we identified some people, some high risk uh, of turnover happening and asked them in our reveal with the leadership, have you seen people leave? We see a lot of risk of turnover. I said, no, not in the last 18 months. And we said, well, it looks like you're at risk for that. So you've got some things we suggest and they didn't do the work at the time. And then five months later, we got this call, panic call, like my three best people just quit. Like they were, you know, they're the ones that they couldn't replace. If they thought oh. were irreplaceable and they it cost them a lot of money to hire other people multiple other people to replace each one and uh they could have kept them with a little bit of work ahead of time so when your turnover is working against you that's what we call you know inverse turnover or maybe you hire a talent and they become c minus talent <laughs> in your culture 
right? Uh, they're doing something wrong. You're not developing them. And of course, you're not asking right. for any feedback. So you have no idea where their head's at. And leadership's all about communication and relationships. And I'm yeah. sure many of those leaders, when those people left, they had no idea. They couldn't see it coming. They didn't see it coming. Right. So, yeah, they get surprised by it. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Caught them off guard. And then it's, uh, they're scrambling last second. Yes. And everything just goes downhill. So now we are at number nine. Yeah. So this one is... Actually, this ties in exactly to what you were saying. We call this the leadership blindfold. A number of years ago, Sidney Yoshida, I think, was famous for this study about what percentage of information did top-level CEOs, executives know about what's actually going on in the organization and among the people. And they found that that percentage is about 4%. Um, some, some of the best leaders in other studies maybe know 17% of what's actually going on in the organization. Um, he called it, these, these are his words, for the record, uh, the iceberg of ignorance, meaning it's like an iceberg where all the information is below the surface that the top level leader can't see. And it's exactly what you're talking about. There's this phenomenon where we, as an employee, people don't want to bring full truth up to their boss or up to the leader or up to the CEO because they're afraid of how that could reflect on them, um, that they could be the bearer of bad news or they might be seen as a troublemaker or that if they bring something bad, that that person has the authority and the ability to fire them, which deeply impacts them. And so they don't share everything or they share very little. And then top level leaders are literally making decisions with a blindfold. Um, they don't mean to be. It's a, just an unfortunate reality kind of in humanity. And uh, they might have an open door policy, but they're unaware of issues with, the, with their clients or customers, unaware of problems among the staff. And it becomes, we actually, when we do an assessment with an organization, we'll have the leader assess what they feel the employees would say is true about their culture and the health of trust and respect, especially, and then compare that, lay it side by side when we report to them with that of the, those in the organization. And without fail, the higher percentage they are off on those questions, the worse off the culture is and the closer it is to a real big problem. So. It's an unfortunate leaders, even if they mean to get it, it's not coming their way. And unless they're trying really hard um, and doing some things like independent type assessments and things, they're just not going to know what's there. That's going to potentially be an iceberg for them to hit. That's right. No, absolutely. And now we are at the end of the list, Keith, yeah. number 10. Yeah. This one's, this one's the most significant. We call this the weaponized values. So Every organization, most organizations, I should say, have core values. It's an important component to success. I wouldn't have to talk about that. You guys have talked about that on here. But there's a point at which when things have eroded pretty significantly and I haven't been heard and I'm frustrated and there are things we're letting go by, undealt with, and people who are not being held accountable and I'm not sure how to get a leg up. And I've maybe shared some of that concern, but it's gone nowhere. People will do this thing where they'll the last ditch effort is sort of to take the values we have written on the wall and use those as my way of speaking out against somebody. So instead of, I mean, we talk about how values really are supposed to be um, a tool to call us all up to an agreement that we've made to each other. Like it's a standard that we all hold and it calls us up to a behavior um, that we all honor and admire. But when things get bad, that list of core values often becomes almost like a list of broken promises, you know, things like respect or trust or integrity or whatever. And people start to take the values and say, well, we say we're about respect around here, but 
how's it respecting me when you call a meeting and you don't show up on time and then you postpone it three times and it's something important, yada, yada, yada. And it's a way for me to, I'm kind of with a, a level of, I don't know, I guess I'm attacking somehow using the values. Um, and it's the reason it happens at the end, I think, is because those things are kind of the integrity of our foundation. And when things get bad enough that I have to start using that to prove my point, then we know that it's gotten pretty bad. So those values become a weapon to do harm and to kind of blame and shame others instead of to call myself up. And that is an unfortunate thing that's we see in the ones that are really struggling towards the end of it. So if you hear people at all using the values as a way to kind of judge or criticize other people, then that definitely is a sign that we need to pause and figure out what's broken among what we expect of each other and what's not been heard between us. No, so. definitely. Definitely. Great list. Now, Keith, no. it's been amazing. What do you think is the number one? If, if When you meet with these people and you sit down in mm. companies and talk to the staff and the leadership and you observe, what's the number one out of this top 10 that you're experiencing? If there's one that really stands out. Hmm. Hmm. The number one, that's a good one, man. I think, I mean, it probably is the leadership blindfold that most leaders want to help the organization become a place of respect and trust. I think all would say that some have the real desire to do it, but they don't have the information at their disposal. And so it's unfortunate that people aren't sharing it up. Um, but that one certainly rears its head. If that stuff exists and nobody's telling you, then what are you gonna do about it? <laughs> yeah. I can't fix something I don't know or something I don't see. So that's what's critical is if we have to create an organization where people feel safe to bring it, uh, leaders have to, just a couple of tips on that. Anytime somebody challenges, when I coach somebody, especially a top level leader, if somebody challenges you in a meeting about your idea or disagrees, especially if that's not safe in your organization, you need to pause as a leader and be like, hey, first of all, thank you. And like high five, maybe not in the pandemic, high air five, whatever, somebody, and call that out in the moment and say, I need people to disagree when they disagree. Like you have to do that here and make sure that you mark that moment as something that you want people to do um, in order for other people to start believe, believing that it's okay there. So yeah, that one's probably the biggest. You know, I agree 100%, Keith, I must say. You know, I worked at a company that really shaped who I was as far as culture goes. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that, it was a, it was a culture of communication, collaboration, creativity. And yeah. nobody had an office. This was interesting, right? So nobody had an office. Everybody was out amongst each other. I used to come to work very early with a friend of mine. The CEO would be there burning the midnight oil. And he would talk to us. And it, we were there and everything was dark and we were preparing our day and we would collaborate. And anytime anybody had something to say feedback wise or constructive criticism wise, it was out of a love and respect for the business and for that person. Everybody yes. strategized together. Everybody collaborated. Everybody wanted to help. And there was obviously a bonus structure in place to where mm -hmm. if the business wins, everybody is, is vested, has a vested interest of doing so because they get paid for it. But it was the best culture. And it, it goes back to exactly what you mentioned. Everybody knew where everybody, yes, you know, yes. everybody understood everybody's mentality their attitude, mm -hmm. their perspective. There was no guessing games. There was no, uh, everybody was transparent. Everybody was open with everything and it was the mm. best culture possible. So I completely yeah, understand. That's fantastic. Keith. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Keith, I love it. Any last words of wisdom or anything you want to share with the audience before mm. we wrap up? You know, that touches on something I think important, Brian, that um, it's easy for us to, if you're an employee 
it's easy for you to think I can impact the culture maybe, but it's really set by the leadership. And to a large degree, it's set, the tone is set by the leadership, but we've seen and have coached people who want to be a, a culture influencer that are capable of doing that when they aren't the, the CEO. Um, you, everybody impacts the culture every day. And we say it really comes down to those one-on-one -on -one interactions. That's where the culture lives and breathes is how we respect and trust and communicate with each other. And you're spot on with that. So you can create that around you by being it. And we have examples of people who have started to live that way as a, even a lower level employee and it's changed the entire department and eventually the organization. Um, it's up to the leaders to get on board and make it sustainable, but you can create as an individual employee um, kind of a, uh, a model for the rest of your organization that people will start to aspire to and make a difference. So anybody can if they, if they just have the heart to start trying and some of the skill involved. So just encourage people to do that. We've seen some things that are really bad turn around to be something really powerful. Um, these kind of signs presence in family members family businesses that can't even talk to each other across the table have stopped going to Thanksgiving together because they're so mad about business things that have turned around dramatically, um, not only their business, but their family relationships. So it can be done. So if you're in a kind of some hope, if you're in a situation that feels hopeless, um, it isn't always. <laughs> um, there you go. So, yeah. I couldn't have said it better myself. Now, Keith, very last question. It's a personal question. You know you a little mm -hmm. better. You're going to be an island for the rest of your life. You can only bring one book, one movie, and one album. <laughs> what would they be? One book, one movie. You said an album? Okay. That's right. Um, I would say, as far as the book, it would probably be a good study Bible or some type because I would need that uh, uh, hope. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> How long am I trapped on this island, Brian? <laughs> my, what's my hope of rescue? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, album, I'm going to cheat on that probably a bit and say, the Hamilton soundtrack, we've been listening to that at, house, at our house for a year and a half constantly with my kids and it hasn't gotten old yet. So, wow. and it's, I think, two and a half hours worth of music. So that's kind of cheating because it might be three or four albums in one, but. <laughs> okay. Uh, a movie, huh, probably, I don't know, probably Princess Bride. I think I'd go with something like that. That's a great movie. <laughs> something fun that would uh, be enjoyable and carry some good kind of people overcoming obstacles to it. I think I'd need that. I definitely wouldn't be cast away. That occurred to me, but yeah, no, definitely yeah. not. <laughs> so Keith, it's been fantastic. How do people get in touch with you and connect with you? Yeah. Thank you. Um, we have what we call an early morning sign quiz that we'd really encourage people to take. It's a freebie. So it just kind of asks some of these questions online and you get a, at the end of it, a USOC score at E W S O C C the early warning signs of culture crash, you know, that kind of lets you know where you might need to put some attention. So they can just email connect at scrogginsgreer.com. That's the um, consulting firm I work with. So scrogginsgreer is S-C-R-O-G-G-I-N-S-G-R-E-A-R.com. So connect scrogginsgreer.com. Just put warning signs or something in the subject line and you'll get that link automatically sent to you. You're not subscribed to anything um, to take that quiz. Um, but you can also email that link and you know, get in touch with me and uh, we'd be happy to talk about ways we can help you or resources we can offer. So we'd just love for people to take these and be their own Tilly Smith, right? Go out and say, hey, I see something coming. <laughs> Let's prevent the pain before it becomes an issue. So there you go. I love it. 
Keith, it's been wonderful. Thank you. It's, it's, the information is so needed right now. And so many people yeah, are going to benefit from this. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Enjoy the kids. You have four of them. I can't, I don't know how you do yes. it. I have two and I have pets and it's just so overwhelming. But I yeah, love yeah. it. It's, it's a good overwhelm. How old are yours, right? Brian? They are. I have a daughter who is six and one who's about to be three. So okay. Yeah. yeah, I've got two. My goal is 10, so I'm not there yet. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, you got a few more. Yeah, it's crawl, walk, run. You know, right now I'm just getting used to it and, you know, pretty yes. soon. I need that many so they can take care of me when I get older, so. Yeah, well, that's the hope. Yeah. You have to take care of them for a long time prior to that, though. That's the one thing you have to sort of remember, so. No, it's true. Right now they're competing <laughs> for my affection, so I can't imagine that times two, but. Uh, yes, and well, and the three oldest are daughters and they're teenagers, so that's. Uh, they're oh, there they're you better go. people than I am. A whole um, ball of wax there, huh? <laughs> yeah, but it's a it's a fun. Yes, I stockpile different things than I used to. You know, like iPhone cords to make sure there isn't a drama in the house. You know, <laughs> and the only thing I can tell you, I, I, my dad told this to to my uh, sister. He said, "I only pay for one wedding, so you and I have a lot of weddings to pay for." So, <laughs> yeah, yes, <laughs> that's. I told my kids they I picked a date in about ten years. We're going to do it in the backyard. I'll perform the ceremony. Whoever you're dating at the time, all three of you would just line you up. You know, do you, do you, do you, you, (laughs) just three for one. And then right (laughs) after the wedding, right after the wedding, you can baptize the, uh, the groom right then after, after that, right? (laughs) Yeah. Just call it. Yeah. Now, now clean up. Thank you. All in one. (laughs) Well, Keith, thank you again. Thank you so much. Keith, have a fantastic day. It's been awesome. Keep up the good work, my friend. You too. Thank you. You got it, sir. Thank you for spending time with us today. We encourage you to join the many businesses that we have helped to achieve their objectives, align their departments, and increase their revenue. You can start by reaching out to us at results at onebrokencog.com. Together, we will make small adjustments that will lead to major impacts to your business, your culture, and your bottom line. 